Seltzer Kings podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, you know what, Gavin? Why don't you just go ahead and, you know, keep this guy? He can just be all British. Yes. The following podcast contains... Wait. Are you saying what I think you're saying? What did you just say? Is that allowed? Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you said to yourself, hey, let's take this character whose raison d'etre was criticizing commercials and put him in a shit ton of commercials. What the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave. And this is episode number 375, the Max Headroom edition of the show, where we talk about the not-so-digital avatar that stole America's hearts. Stay tuned. The What the Hell You Think podcast is brought to you by RoboHost, the artificial intelligence podcast host. Are you tired of your podcast host ego, temp constant tipper tantrums, and snarky live read and advertisements? Are you looking for an easy-to-work-with solution without all the drama, drunken giggles, and emotional breakdowns of Meat Space podcast hosts? You need a robo-host, a totally artificial intelligence host. What we did was take 100,000 podcast episodes, fed them into an algorithm, and created the perfect podcast host. Entertaining, never blows a line read, and most of all, sober. That never, ever, ever locks itself in the bathroom until the producer rewrites the ad copy to make it more funny. RoboHost will make producing a podcast a dream because we take the asshole out of the equation and just give you the pleasant banter of pure AI. RoboHost, for all the smooth talking and none of the ego, don't believe us? Just ask This American Life. They replaced Ira Glass with RoboHost three years ago. No one noticed, except for the producers, that is. And now to someone, or is it something, that made a considerable impact on your screens earlier this year, heralded as the ideal TV presenter. He eats nothing doesn't need paying, doesn't like holidays, and does what he's told. He's the first computer-generated TV personality, and the commissionaires found him hard to handle when he arrived at the theater earlier on. Guys, you guys, for God's sake, don't grease the soup, will you? Well, since then, wasn't that exciting, everybody? Since then, <laughs> he's been in his dressing suite, and I think he's now ready to appear. Do we have him now? Is he, do we, is he available? Do, don't rush him. If he's Fine, he's ready. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Max Headroom. By the mid-1980s, it was abundantly clear the times they were changing thanks to the miracle of technology. You mean like flying cars? No, no, sorry, not those. The man's living on the moon. No, definitely not that. I mean, 
Reagan was spending all the money we could use to make moon bases uh, for space lasers that didn't work and nuclear missiles, which definitely would. We hate that guy. Me too. Now, what we all could see is that technology was going to make some things much, much smaller, like, say, a portable music device, and other things much, much bigger, like TV screens. It seemed like every time we turned around, some talking head on the news was telling us the computers were coming and they were going to change everything. They were right, of course. We just didn't understand the change would be for the worse. Now, a side effect of this digital revolution was how every single commercial and advertisement in the print media was marketed, that was marketed toward anyone under the age of 55 had to have some kind of technology with high tech. Meaning it was computer generated? Oh, hell no. The technology wasn't anywhere close enough to pull that off. But no, it needed to look like it was computer generated. And in the mid 1980s, that meant a lot of vibrant colors and flashing lights. I was so blinded by the bright neon. I Lots of strobing lasers, animated characters with heavy jingles in an interstitial static and blurring. It was all very seizure inducing, but back then, you were willing to send a few kids to the hospital if it sold some sneakers. And you've probably seen the internet memes featuring the laser effects in 80s school photos. Well, imagine that on television in every fucking advertisement ever. And you've got a pretty decent idea of the design motif. And all of this was to convince young people that the digital future was near and they should spend their money on things that were still very much in the analog now, but they were. I'm very pink. Did it make sense? No, but logic is not required. You spending money on plastic pink gigaws was. I tell you all of this to explain and introduce this week's topics. The most 80s character of the entire 1980s. This is Max Headroom. You've all heard of Max Headroom, but this week I'm going to explain Max Headroom and why Max Headroom, you know, is nothing like the Max Headroom his creators intended, and you get one guess as to why that was. It's a little thing called capitalism. Exactamundo. So without further preamble, let's slide into our parachute pants, don our members only, and head back to the 1980s. First of all, you got to understand, Max, not an American creation. In fact, Max was made to mock Americans and pretty much everything about our culture. Americans being Americans never actually fucking noticed that. BBC Channel 4. Tonight, the last trump sounds on Channel 4 for the end of the world in Doomsday, the final part of the National Theatre's production of The Mysteries. This. The United Kingdom's youngest and hippest television station launched in 1982 purportedly to showcase minority viewpoints rather than the stodgy programming featured on the rest of the Beeb. I'm not exactly sure what minorities TV4 was representing because its first big hit was titled A Woman of Substance. This fall, Deborah Carr stars in Barbara Taylor Bradford's A Woman of Substance. The documents must be irreversible, irrevocable, watertight. I must be absolutely sure they could not be successfully contested in any court of law. All starring a bunch of very white, 
very British people. In early 1984, Channel 4 was looking to launch something for the young people of Britain, and they saw this MTV thing happen in the old states and decided to go in that direction. They commissioned Chrysalis Visual Programming LTD, part of the Chrysalis record label, to create a new character and film some things to introduce said character and then become a VJ for a Channel 4 video music show. Chrysalis came back with Max Headroom. The plan was simple. Broadcast a movie explaining Max's backstory and then let the character do these things. And so it was that Max Headroom, 20 minutes into the future, was produced. Quoting from TheVerge.com and their article, Live and Direct the Definitive Oral History of 1980s Digital Icon Max Headroom, which I will be drawn through almost completely during the remainder of the show. Quote, Set in the near future where global corporations control all the media and citizens are hopelessly addicted to dozens of TV channels, the movie follows Carter, working for the mysterious Network 23, as he discovers that network executives have created a form of subliminal advertising known as blipverts that can actually kill. While tracking the story, Carter is flung into a barrier marked Max Headroom 2.3 Meters. Desperate to maintain ratings with a star reporter, the network enlists a young hacker to download Carter's mind and create a virtual version of the journalist. But things don't go quite right. The result, the stuttering, sarcastic Max, unquote. The premise was in the future, but not very far in the future. Ergo, the whole 20 minutes thing. Satellite and cable television was spreading across the UK and the US, bringing a wave of television stations previously unimagined to the four-channel world. It also brought a wave of advertising to pay for all those channels, and the cognoscenti of the world were kind of worried that the dreck about the dreck that was spilling into the brains of humanity. Can't imagine why. The show writers created a plot where the blipverts, a high-speed subliminal advertising message designed to deliver ad content before the viewer could actually change channels during the commercial breaks. The problem was those blipverts had a tendency to kill people. Not 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 everyone, mind you. I mean, the ads killed everyone, you, you would run out of customers and people would start to notice. But no, the blipverts only kill sedentary viewers. You know. These fat fucks. The network covers that little bit of information up. You know, that blipverts are curing, killing some of their viewers, the viewers that aren't demographically desirable anyway. And the protagonist, the news reporter named Carter, discovers the secret and the network tries to kill him. He's knocked into a coma, but the last thing he sees before going dark that he smacks into emblazoned with the words Max Headroom 2.3 meters, which is a little over six feet for those of us still using real measurements. And eventually he's downloaded and assumes the persona of Max Headroom. You with me so far? Going now back to The Verge, quote, So what you have in the character is a consciousness, fully human, totally amnesiac, whose first experience of the world is exposure to 30,000 simultaneous channels of television. That's where the character comes from. He's a fusion of every evangelist, every sports reporter, everything you see on TV. And from his perspective, he sees no difference or distinction between them, unquote. That sounds awful. Rest assured, it was. Now, you're probably wondering why a TV network would be okay with the messaging that TV networks are evil and are killing people. And more to the point, why would said network want said whistleblower to be the host of a video music show? British, it turns out. 
It's usually around this time that I stumble across some small piece of esoterica that explains the dichotomy, but in this case, I can't find a single explanation of why the BBC and later their American pound counterparts would be totally okay with the character and the show that was basically giving them a huge middle finger in its entire premise. The only explanation I could come up with was uh, that they didn't notice or didn't care, which is strongly supported by later developments in the story of Max Headroom. It goes without saying that the whole premise is pretty preposterous and the writing for the movie and the subsequent TV shows was, uh... Okay, uh, how do I put this lightly? Hit and miss? You can find 20 Minutes of the Future on YouTube and watch it if you like, but I don't necessarily recommend it. But hey, what do I know? You are listening to this podcast. What saved the show was the casting of Max Headroom. Quoting now from Wikipedia, quote, Canadian-American actor Matt Frewer tested for the role after a friend of his had already auditioned and suggested him instead. Producers and Max Headroom creator Annabelle Jenkel thought Frewer would be a good choice to masquerade as a person whose appearance was designed by a computer, seeing from his casting Polaroid photo that he had unbelievably well-defined features. Frewer was given a few lines of dialogue and then encouraged to improvise as he saw fit. Frewer did a comedic improvisation that lasted more than 10 minutes, impressing the production crew. The actor took inspiration from the character Ted Baxter of the Mary Tyler Moore Show. And now continuing with the news, local pig farmers serve notice today that rising corn prices are forcing them to find other means to feed their stock. Many of them are already resorting to substitute diets of slop and garbage. Saying in a 1987 interview, quote, I particularly wanted to get that phony bonhomie of Baxter. And Max always assumed you had a decade-long friendship on the first meeting, like how at first sight he would just ask you about the blackhead on your nose, unquote. Donning rubber hair and extensive makeup, Fruer was transformed into an angular avatar of a dude. Then, using extensive lighting effects and some basic analog and video editing techniques, he was filmed in such a way that in a time before extensive computer graphics gave the viewer what they thought computer graphics should look like. Shitty. Very shitty. What's funny is it worked. People thought that Max Headroom was a fully CGI creation for a little while. I mean, we are talking about the viewers of the BBC, and that was a network that somehow made a phone booth, a screwdriver, a blocky plastic dog, and a ludicrously long scarf look sci-fi. I have never been able to explain to myself, so I cannot explain to you, what the fuck is up with Doctor Who. Those who love Doctor Who, love it without question. Those of us who do not, do not understand what people who love it are on about. Red Dwarf, I mean, I totally get it. It's low-budget Star Trek with characters that are so basically unlikable, you have no choice but to find them funny. But Doctor Who, be it the 60s or the 21st century incarnation of the Doctor, will always be as inexplicable to me as naming a dessert spotted dick, which is not a nice sweet treat for the holidays, but a horrible and highly transmissible sexual disease. I guess it's opinions like that that keep me from being allowed to immigrate to the United Kingdom. But it was Frewer that gave Headroom a certain flippant charisma and panache. The character was cocky, but likable. 
and went a long way towards keeping him out of the uncanny valley, which is odd considering that he was a real human pretending to be a computer-generated program. But, you know, that has happened before in low-budget sci-fi. So what came out of the prosthetics, very limited effects, and Matt Furrer was something much bigger than the sum of its parts. What came out was Max Headroom. And the nuclear powers have just denied rumors that the world's waters are being polluted by nuclear waste. They say that the pollution is being caused not by them, but by all the dead fish we have today in the sea. And people loved it. Again from The Verge, quote, It just caught fire. We doubled ratings within three weeks. We were renewed three weeks into the run. And anybody under the age of 25 just loved it. And anybody above that age was just completely confused. It was amazing, you know. It was a genuine phenomena in its time, unquote. The whole thing instantly blew past the intent of the network, the producers, and the writers of the show. What was intended to be a goofy interstitial between Duran Duran videos suddenly became a pop culture phenomena. And Max Headroom was literally sitting down with the stars. Frewer was interviewing celebrities in costume and in character. For the last 12 weeks, you have been kind enough to allow little old moi into your home. Now I'm going to let Vu into mine. And so, the Max Headroom Show takes a giant leap sideways onto my cocktail bar as I welcome, at last, <laughs> a guest on my show. Sting. And a short time after that, Max had his own variety show. More from The Verge, quote, The variety show version of the Max Headroom Show, complete with a live studio audience, soon followed. Max facing off against the likes of Michael Caine, Jack Lemmon, and Vidal Sassoon. With two books, trading cards, and a legion of other merchandise tie-ins, Max was everywhere. And every single item was copyright chrysalis video, visual media, unquote. Max was all the rage... He was also so, so, so very British. So how did Max jump the pond? It all goes back to the beginning when the show's producers began shopping for funding to make the show happen. They started reaching out to American networks to see if they were interested in the idea and uh, none other than... uh, It was pretty quiet until I flipped a skin of Max. ...managed to take them up on their offer. Back to The Verge, quote, The entire production, including the music video show with Max hosting them, was in the region of about a million pounds. HBO, still in their infancy, had an arm called Cinemax. It is actually hard for me not to use the word Skinemax when talking about Cinemax. We talked to Peter Wagg, who said, Go to America, go and pitch this to HBO or Cinemax, who used the original programming in the era to try and help define the pay TV services. And Cinemax said... And we were looking for something kind of edgy and unusual for Cinemax, which was just at that point beginning to have some original program. And they liked the idea. It just all seemed to work, and we thought it was pretty interesting for Cinemax. We wouldn't have thought of it for HBO because it was small and dangerous in a certain kind of way, unquote. And so the second and third seasons of Max Headroom's show were broadcast in the States on Cinemax, including a Christmas special written by none other than George R.R. R. Martin back when he was still capable of finishing things. Oh, that was way too harsh. No need to be mean. 
Max Headroom's run on The Beeb ended after three seasons, but on Cinemax, they went another half dozen original shows under the title The Original Talking Max Headroom Show. But, you know, cable then isn't what cable is now, and Cinemax was a very, very small network that you got for half price when you signed up for HBO, and it was mostly known for softcore porn after midnight. And it would take a lot more than the exposure on this tiny, tiny network to truly transform Max into what he became. And that is where ABC comes in. Back to The Verge, quote, ABC went to work adapting 20 minutes into the future into the first episode of the U.S. series, series Blipverts. Original cast members Matt Frewer, Amanda Pays, who plays Theora, and William Morgan Shepard, who played Blank Reg, joined the new show. And while all the other roles were recast, however... Uh, the first attempt at writing Steve Roberts' scripts proved less than successful, unquote. You see, Max, as a uh, dramatic series, could just never seem to find its footing. Again, the premise of the show was that network television and advertising executives were, you know, kind of, uh... Evil. Which, of course, they totally were. And the British creators of Max were fully sidelined, and the brand was taken over by the ad giant BBDO. Again, from The Verge, quote, Neither Blipverts nor any other subsequent episode of the ABC series bears any mention of George Stone, Rocky Morton, Annabelle Jenkel, or the original credit, uh, original idea credit. The show's quirky brand of cyberpunk struggled in his debut, coming in 26th for the night despite a strong lead-in from Moonlighting. Not since cinema greats Tracy and Hepburn has there been the kind of love-hate screen chemistry that these two create in Moonlighting. Sybil Shepard and Bruce Willis. But Max continued to be a cultural juggernaut. The creative team took advantage, sharpening the TV industry satire with every episode. Matt Frewer said, at the time, we thought we were the coolest kids on the block and we were the hippest show in town. And they would never take us off the air. So we were kind of cocky, trying to get away with things, slipping things past the censors, then just kind of boldly holding our middle finger up to the whole business. It was vicious in his condemnation of the way television worked. If you were a fan in those days, you'll remember things like the ratings were plunging, were down to 58 million. And then one says, well, we could go porno early. And of course, we absolutely were biting deep into the bones and the ligaments of the hand that was feeding us, unquote. The show's writers were struggling to keep the true original vision while the network and BBDO were busy selling Max to every fucking company that would fork out any money. I'll get there in a second. The TV show was given two abbreviated seasons on ABC and then unceremoniously canceled. You know what? The show didn't matter. The brand, the brand was everywhere. Max was on the cover of Newsweek, and even bigger to a subset of the youth demographic, on the cover of Mad Magazine. Every one one out of a piece of the headroom pie. But you know what? It was going to cost a lot of money, so whoever got it was going to have to pay, and pay big. It just so happens, there was a tiny little company that was in need of a lot of help at that particular moment of the 1980s, and they had the kind of cash it took to completely co-opt the creative intent of the people who made Max Headroom in the first place. Is this a private party or can any store crush? So, no, 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 it is irresistible. This is more modern than... 
You said the B word. So what I want to know is, if you're drinking Coke, who's drinking Pepsi? If you can't beat it, cast away Coke. But that is a story I can't tell you right now, because if I did, I wouldn't have a show for next week. So for now, let me tell you how Max Headroom caught the wave and that wave deposited him and the brand high and dry. Going to the back to the verge one last time. Quote, the second season of Max Headroom debuted on September 18th, 1987. Less than a month later, ABC pulled the plug. Peter Wagg, the producer, said the president of ABC at the time was Brandon Stoddard. I'm in the edit bay editing a show, and I get this call, and they say, Brandon Stoddard's on the line, and I'm editing a sequence where George Coe, who played the chairman of the board of Network 23, is saying, what the hell do they know about television? And I'm like, oh, I'm about to get a call from the chairman of ABC to cancel the show. Matt Frewer said, we got a call up on the set. There was supposed to be this big meeting with the producer. I remember going to Jeffrey Tambor, and like, oh, God, it looks like we're getting pulled off the air just as a joke, and we were. Brian Frankish, a producer on the show, said, I'll never forget the canceling. I turned to the assistant director and said, don't release anybody. Keep them. Nobody goes home today. We'll finish the day and we're all done. Up on the next block is the Players Club on the 11th floor. They've got a big, nice 1930s bar. And everybody meet me there for drinks. And everybody came up and I told everybody we were canceled. Spent $700 at the bar. Steve Roberts, a writer on the show, said, you know, said, my private view is that Capital Cities, the outfit that ran this whole thing, was run out of New York. I think some top executive wives rolled over one day and said, you know something? This program is taking the piss out of the way you make your living. And he probably looked at the Max Headroom show for the very first time and said, can it? Matt Frewer said again, it was this bizarre short shock over the course of four or five years where the show seemed to be the biggest thing on the planet. I was on the cover of Newsweek. Then it disappeared. I remember going to Lorimar, the MGM Studios. I think it was the day after we had the plug pulled. And I saw the, the security guy, and it was the strangest thing. He pretended not to know me because I was no longer worth knowing. I was persona non grata. My parking space had been taken away. My nameplate, which, of course, is the ultimate insult. Unquote. And there it was. There were attempts to get a movie, which came to nothing. The Coke deal ran out and wasn't renewed. Not because of Max Headroom, but mostly because new Coke had just uh, sucked. And no amount of marketing budget was going to change that. And as we will see next week, Max would pop up in places like Back to the Future 2 and Mel Brooks parodied Max character in Spaceballs. Tell him, Vinny. Carl's Pizza is gonna send out for you. And even a bit on Late Night with David Letterman, which of course was the peak of 80s pop culture. We can also expect to see more, more computer-generated TV personalities. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present our warm spit attempt to cash in on a trend, Larry Bud Headroom. But Max Headroom has the brand and the show was pretty much gone. The intellectual property wound up spending the next 20 years in court before the original shows were so before it was settled and the original shows could finally come out on DVD where it promptly found its way into the internet. Eminem appeared as Max Headroom as a Max Headroom clone in a 2013 video for his song Rap God. But as a general rule, Max is considered one of those uh, pieces of 80s ephemera that exemplified what the decade was all about. 
Mostly as uh, gratuitous cash grabs. That's because of the new Coke ads. And it's kind of synonymous with how the 80s was basically a commercialism free-for-all, which, yeah, of course, it was. But that misses the entire point of Max Headroom's creators and what they were trying to say in the first place, which was, of course... Must crush capitalism. Which, of course, didn't fit in with the whole idea of the brand. You know, there's supposed to be a reboot going on in the works today, but I, I, I can't see it going anywhere. And even if it does, it'll just get sucked into that void of nostalgia capitalism, which I wish this show would get sucked into because we could really use the money. But if it does come to pass that the Max, re, Max is rebooted, I promise you, within six months, there'll be a nostalgic reboot of new Coke, God help us all. And there will be Max on the screen, this time in full, glorious, real computer graphics with an AI-generated voice that sounds just enough like Matt Frewer that will, people will buy it, but not enough like Matt Frewer for him to make any actual money off the fucking thing. Because the lesson that is Max Headroom teaches us that if you fight a monster, you must always be on guard because you might just turn into the monster you're trying to fight. Which, I guess what I'm trying to say is, you, Stitcher, call me, because I will sell this fucking show in a heartbeat, and you could do it with whatever host you want for a shockingly low amount of money. <laughs> that is it for our show this week, you know. I never cared for Max back in the day. It was an early example in my life of everyone liking something, so I was going to not like it just to be different. Something I continue to do to this day. The more something goes viral, the less likely I am to participate or partake of it. Just out of spite. Speaking of doing things out of spite, rate and review us wherever you get your pods so other folks can find us, take a listen, and think you must have suggested listening to us just to be spiteful. If you'd like to kick us a dollar to pay for our new Cokes, hit us up on patreon.com slash whatthehellpodcast and definitely make sure... You do all the things Jeremy tells you to do in the closing. Otherwise, he might hit me over the head with a traffic arm and upload my consciousness into the podcast feed RSS. And so for me, Dave, damn, do I sound sexy. Bledsoe, producer. God, I only wish someone would hit him over the head with a traffic arm. Gavin, and all the fictional digital avatars on the show, we want to say, hey. Catch the wave. Coke. And we'll see you all next week. Hi. Hi. How long have we known each other? Oh, we go way back. You know, we've never sung a song together. You know, that's true. Maybe we better put that right. Not time like the present, big fella. You know this one? Are you kidding? Grab a line. Try to hang on. We're just good pals. That's right. Ain't got no time for gals. You're the one I rely on, like Riker under nylon. We laugh, we have fun. We sure do. We're like the double barrel of a gun. We go together like days and nights, like legs in the same pair of tights. <laughs> you enjoying this? Since I don't know what. Carry on. Oh, try and stop me. 
We're just good pals. That's no time for Susie or Sal. We're a couple. What the hell were you thinking, stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What the Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. I'll have a new Coke, please. Seltzer Kings Podcasts.